Todd mentioned, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 today. Taking a little break from Hebrews for the month of September uh, to look at the Lord's Supper as we get ready to make a few administrative changes to how we do it here as a body. We wanted to hit the pause button for a moment and as a church really look at getting a better understanding of what it is that we're doing when we come to the table of the Lord. The Lord's given us two sacraments or ordinances, baptism, the Lord's Supper. Both of these are signs of gospel realities accomplished by Christ to which we are united by faith. Baptism as a one-time unrepeated sign signifying the beginning of our life with Christ. Death, sin, raised to walk in newness of life. Lord's Supper now is a repeated chance for us, a sign that we repeat, again signifying gospel realities accomplished by Jesus Christ, which we are united by faith. As Adam kind of mentioned in his introduction to the catechism, often in theology and Christian thought, there is a couple different pitfalls. Sometimes you go down a rabbit trail, get hung up on a detail, and never get to the core of what is being taught or instructed. And other times there's this tends to be a reaction in our theology. With the Lord's Supper, I think that is the case. As you would trace it through church history, you would see it's been debated for such a long time. In fact, as Adam mentioned, even at the point of the Reformation, there's more literature, more debate on the sacrament of the Lord's Supper than on anything else. And so we want to guard against certain things, specifically kind of a Roman Catholic idea, and guarding against any idea that the bread and the cup transform actually, really, literally into the body of Christ. And if such is the case, then Christ is being suffering and being sacrificed anew every time you partake of the Lord's Supper. And we're told in Hebrews that is idolatry to crucify Christ once again, over and over and over again. And also guard against the idea that in taking of these elements, we are meriting or earning favor and grace. As if partaking of these earns us something in justification, undermining what we treasure so dearly, justification by faith alone. And so we want to be clear in the distinction between when we say means of grace, that you were not hearing any sort of merit or earning of grace. But it is a sign that signifies gospel realities accomplished by Jesus Christ, to which we are united by faith. So when we say means of grace, we would simply talk about it in the same way. We would encourage you to come to church and to gather together and to hear the preaching You don't merit favor with God by sitting here and hearing preaching, but God uses it as a means to accomplish perseverance and sanctification and growth and to fall in love more with Christ and become more like Him. The same thing in worship, the same thing in prayer, the same thing in fellowship with one another. God uses all of these as means to accomplish His work in you. They are gracious gifts, gracious means that God has given us 
And sometimes with the Lord's Supper, once we start connecting ideas of grace, we get scared and think, okay, we're going too far. And so instead of saying the right thing about the Lord's Supper, we just kind of cut off all meaning from it. And that it's just, it's something we do because God tells us to do it. And we cut the legs out of the significance and the richness of what is taking place in the Lord's Supper. So this morning what I want to do quickly and give ourselves a little bit of time for Q&A at the end is to look at Corinthians 11 and do three things. One, I want to look at the context of Corinthians 11 to give us the context in which this instruction is given. Secondly, I want to look at the attitude and the activity at the table. What is the attitude? What is the activity? What is happening at the Lord's table? And then thirdly, I want to look at the role of examination at the Lord's table. What rule, role does self-examination play at the Lord's table? Corinthians, if you're familiar at all with Corinthians, you know the church was a mess. The letter to the church of Corinth is full of uh, pointed admonition and instruction and strong encouragement. And Paul begins here as he would look at the church, and he begins in verse 17. I I think this is interesting that he needs to kind of remind them this. He goes, In the following instruction, I I do not commend you, but when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Kind of reminding you. What I'm about to say, like, don't try to spin this that I'm praising you or commending you. Get it up front. I'm instructing you. (laughs) You're gathering together. And it is not helping anyone. It is not healthy. In fact, it is hurting. It's a mess. Five times in this little section, he, talks, he uses the phrase gathering together, coming together. And it is the idea of the people of God assembling together. When you assemble for church, when you gather together, that is the context And so he's saying, okay, I get it, you're gathering together, that's not my problem. But when you're gathering together, what you're doing is not church, you're not being the people of God. It is hurting people. It is more unhealthy when you gather together than helping anybody. So he goes on a little bit further here and gives us some reasons why. He goes, for in the first place, verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. He just makes a couple caveats. First, that he, you know, he believes there are divisions. Probably whoever is informing Paul of these divisions is somewhat biased himself. So he says, I believe it. Not that I believe every word, but I do believe it. There are, then he says also, there's going to be some divisions as the genuine believers, the wheat and the tares tend to separate. But what he's seeing is much bigger and uglier than that. Verse 20, he says, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And he continues on. So we see the um, first and immediate critique here is there is disunity and division among them. There is zero consideration of one another. When they come together, it is not out of love. There is no consideration of one another. It is promotion of self and consideration of self. Instead of considering one another, they compare themselves to one another. Focus totally on what they have, their needs. I could stop right there and make some really pointed applications. We can all tend to fall into that. 
Considering one another, as we looked in Hebrews, it takes work to consider one another. To study one another, to know one another, understand one another, so we can stir up one another for love and good works. Not coming just considering yourself. And so in this ugliness, total lack of love and division and disunity, now he says, and it's showing itself most ugly at the Lord's table. He gives a little further detail of what that looks like. Verse 20 again. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So in the coming to the Lord's Supper, first of all, he says, what you're doing, don't even pretend it is the Lord's Supper. It's not that. What you're eating is not the Lord's table. And so they're coming and they're sharing more of a meal together and you have some who have much and they're coming and they're feasting and they're getting drunk on all that they have and just kind of gorging themselves on it. Meanwhile, someone right beside them has nothing and they're getting not a bite of bread, not a drink of wine, completely held at bay. And by this, they're humiliating them. They're lording over them. Total lack of any concept of what's taking place in the church, being the people of God, especially now when we come to the Lord's table, totally losing sight of both the vertical realities and the horizontal realities one with another. Zero concern, zero love for one another. It seems significant to me that as we come now to the passage that gives us the most information on the Lord's Supper and Paul's teaching, that he doesn't approach it necessarily as, okay, you know, here's what you do in preaching, here's what you do in singing, here's what you do in prayer, here's what you do in Lord's Supper, as if he's just laying out a, here's our steps of worship. But he addresses the Lord's Supper in the context of, in light of church life. How is the Lord's Supper supposed to function within our body, of us being the church? What are the vertical and horizontal realities going on with church life? And how does the Lord's Supper speak into that? And so he's telling them, when you gather together, it's not church. You're not acting like the people of God. When you say you're doing the Lord's table, that's not the Lord's table. It's a total mess. And now he's going to switch gears just a little bit and instruct us on what it is we're doing at the Lord's table. So that is point two, the attitude and the activity at the table. Five things we see. First, what we are doing, there's a couple different ways you can say it. Feasting by faith on Christ, participation, maybe I can say it, participation in the body, the blood. And that's what Adam covered last week in the context of 1 Corinthians 10, setting for us the participation in, the fellowship with, feasting by faith on Christ. There's something we're united to here. And then in our context, we see number two. And that is remembering the sacrifice of Christ for us. Remembering the sacrifice of Christ for us. In verses 20, verse 24, I'll start in verse 23. So here Paul is going back and rehearsing from Matthew and, and from the gospel 
when Jesus Gospels, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, and he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then likewise with the cup. So in the Lord's Supper, we are remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and specifically, we are remembering it is for us. The sacrifice of Christ, we are remembering that literally, actually, historically, Jesus came as a man, lived perfectly, obediently for us, and then in the last week of his life, after suffering really his whole life, living in perfect obedience, experienced Mockery, suffering. Isaiah talks about him being beaten. A crown of thorns placed on his head. Mockery, lashing, beaten worse than anyone has been beaten. His body broken. Blood poured out and shed. This really happened. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, did this. We're not just remembering some vague idea that Jesus loves. We're remembering actual events of Jesus Christ suffering to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then he takes it one step farther that in the participation of the Lord's Supper, you are remembering that it was done for you. Again, not just vaguely offered for some sins out there. For your sin. Jesus Christ lived perfectly. You did not. He suffered. He was broken. His blood was shed for you. That's what we're remembering. It's not a memorial service like a funeral where we just, oh yeah, let's just vaguely remember Jesus Christ. We are remembering a body broken, blood shed, a sacrifice for us. Very specifically. So we're feasting by faith on Christ and that participation in what is going on. We are remembering a sacrifice and we're remembering that sacrifice is for us. Thirdly, we are savoring the new covenant. Savoring the new covenant. I think this gets lost sometimes. Let's look at verse 25. In the same way, Jesus took the cup After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. He attached new covenant for very specific reasons, not just, you know, merely attach it for some historical significance or whatever. This is the new covenant of my in my blood. When we come to the Lord's table, when we partake of the cup. We are celebrating, we are savoring the new covenant. The new covenant that was inaugurated, that was sealed, that was secured with the blood of Jesus Christ. Blood shed, blood spilled out. Let's back up to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. You can turn there if you want or just listen. I'm going to read Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And listen for these precious promises in the new covenant. 
It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That is the Mosaic law he's talking about there. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Shed blood of Christ, inaugurating, sealing, accomplishing new covenant, new covenant promises secured for us. And when we take that cup and it passes our our lips and our throats, we should be remembering and celebrating and savoring new covenant promises for us. Delighting in that. Let's look at those specifically. In the new covenant, God promises to forgive sins. In Matthew 26, 28, Jesus, as he's handing out the cup, says, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We see it repeated in the new covenant. The blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus by the shedding of blood is the basis for our forgiveness for sin. When we come and we take these elements, we are savoring the truth of the new covenant that we have forgiveness because of the work of another. We come with a Savior who remembers our sin no more. What is it in Exodus? If you've been in any of the Redeemer Roots classes, you've probably heard us talk about the riddle of the Old Testament as God it reveals himself to Moses and he says these two contrasting thoughts in the Revelation. And as God reveals himself, he says, The Lord, the Lord, this is who I am. I am gracious. I am slow to anger. I will not hold your sin against you. And then the end of the verse he goes, And I will let no sin go unpunished. Like, that makes zero sense. <laughs> And we see the tension of that in the Old Testament. And we see the law and we see the sacrifices and we see it all pointing to Jesus Christ. That God can justly stand before you and say, no sin will go unpunished and I will remember your sin no more. Because the forgiveness of sins isn't free because Christ paid the price. It's free for us. And the new covenant promises as we take that cup and it passes on our lips is this, forgiveness of sins by the work of Jesus Christ. We are a new covenant people. What else does he promise? God promises to write the law on our hearts. And that Old Testament law was a law written on stone, put before the people. It wasn't internal, it was external. It couldn't accomplish perfection. It couldn't accomplish. And it became a law set before them that they could not keep. And all their striving. And now the promise is that that law will be written on our hearts. No longer an external duty, 
but now an internal joy and delight that by the Spirit's work, by the promise at justification, that He will also sanctify us, that He will write that law upon our heart, that we have been set free from the law. So when we drink that cup, it is not a new law. It is not a new work, a new work of the law. It is not a new law that we come and experience. It is new life. Jesus Christ has written it upon our hearts. And by grace, holiness becomes a delight. Following Christ becomes a joy and a delight. It's by faith. We are united to the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. And he says, this is the new covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Not just some vague memory. Yeah, there was Jesus. There are new covenant promises you experience in this moment. And that's why it's so important we don't turn the Lord's Supper into a new law that simply is, God said to do it, and as long as I do it, that's my new law, is that I do it. It's not how it works. It's not a new law, but it is new life. What else does he promise? God promises that all of the covenant people shall know God from the least to the greatest. You shall know your God. Last week, Brother Mark Furman, if you weren't here, you missed a real blessing is hearing the presentation from these missionaries, hearing Mark preach from Romans 8 on Father, Abba, Father, a relationship with God from the least to the greatest, flying in the face of the church at Corinth of these people who feel like they're elite and shaming those below them because they didn't bring as big a picnic as I brought. And he's saying, no, in the new covenant promises, from the least to the greatest, you shall know your God. When you come and you partake, it is a personal, real, living relationship with God that you experience. Abba, Father, daughters, sons of the living God. That is the joy, that is what you savor, that you can come boldly before the throne, that he loves you, that he cares for you, that there is dignity and worth that you have because you are made in his image, redeemed by his son. You can come boldly before the throne. New covenant promises at the cup. That is what is taking place. That is what we're savoring. And finally, the last promise we'll look at in the new covenant. God promises that he will be our God and we will be his people. Think about that. That new covenant promise is when you take the cup, that promise God of this earth, he is our God. He is mine. I am his. Purchased, bought with the precious blood of Christ. I am not his because I performed in such a way this week that makes me worthy of being his. I am his because I am hidden in Christ who performed perfectly and bore my sin. And by faith, I'm united to him and his accomplishments for me on the cross. Savoring the new covenant. It's not just, hey, come forward, get your drink, try not to spill any on you, sit down. 
It's remembering a sacrifice for us. It's feasting by faith, a participation in the blood and the body of Christ. It is savoring all the realities of the new covenant for us, accomplished by Christ. Fourthly, it is proclaiming the gospel. The attitude and activity at the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of the gospel. Look at verse 26. It says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's kind of a backwards looking, a immediate, and a future looking, all sort of implicit within proclaiming the Lord's death. We look back, as we've talked about it, remembering the sacrifice for us, the death of Christ. And right now we realize the gospel isn't just like one thing we need to learn once, say a prayer, and now we're good to go. We need to hear the gospel again and again and again for our life. That's our goal when we stand up here and teach and preach. The gospel would be explicit within it over and over and over again. You know you are justified by grace alone. It is by faith that we don't confuse law and gospel and now give you some do's and don'ts in order to earn your way to God, but we preach gospel and we proclaim it when we come to the Lord's table. We remind ourselves of gospel truth. We proclaim it in the elements. We look back and we realize that right now I need this to nourish my heart and my soul. Gospel truth right now. And then we look forward. We proclaim it until he comes. That implies a resurrection. That implies that he is coming again. It's a meal we enjoy now, but it is a meal that we will feast with Christ at his table at some point. And we look forward to it. We fully and finally realize all of these new covenant promises. The consummation. It's not just stale bread and juice as a sign It is a sign that signifies. You can't separate the sign and what it signifies. What it signifies is gospel realities accomplished by Jesus Christ to which we are united by faith. How beautiful. We're we're people who work on multiple senses, right? And you come and hear. That is the main way you have the gospel. It's spoken. You can read it. We proclaim it. You hear it. But the Lord graciously gives us a gift, the now in the bread, in the cup. You can proclaim the gospel as you do it. You can handle this. You can handle the sign that signifies the realities of the gospel. You can take that cup and you can taste it as it passes over your lips. And we are proclaiming, we are preaching the gospel to ourselves, to one another, as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And just as you need to week after week come and hear the preached word, as you need to fellowship with other believers, as you need to pray, all of those in obedience to God's commands, it's life-giving grace as the gospel goes forth and you receive it. And the Lord's Supper is such a gift for us in that way that now we can see it and, and taste it and handle it and we're reminded of the gospel and they're psyched about it in there. David and Cassie Cole teaching in there, so just everyone make sure you give them a hard time and being noisy in there. 
first time teaching him, I just threw him right under the bus, so. (laughs) Gospel realities, past, present, and future. Fifthly, our last thing here on our attitude and activities at the table is that we do it as we gather together in unity and love. Let's look at verse 27. I'll read down for a little bit. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Wow, talk about the importance. And it goes on, gives some more instruction. So we know from the context, they're gathering together, not acting like the body of Christ. There's no unity, there's no love, there's no consideration of one another. And he said, you're not discerning the body. There's a little bit of debate there, whether body is referring to the body of Christ or referring to body as in the family here, the church gathered. I think, I'm pretty convinced, it's the church gathered. And he's saying, you're not discerning the body of Christ. You're gathering together with zero care for one another, zero expression of love. There is no horizontal unity, no horizontal reality of how the gospel affects us as a community. You say you need to discern, you need to understand the gospel and how it affects the body, and you come as the people of God. Coming in love. 1 John 2, 10 and 11, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In other words, when the gospel grips our heart, the very first thing that happens is we love one another. That needs to be present within our body as we celebrate gospel realities together. And then finally, and we'll go this quickly so we have some time for Q&A, and that is the rule of examination in the Lord's Supper. Verses 27 and 28. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Remember the context, how they are approaching the Lord's table? And such a mockery, blaspheming the blood of Christ, as Hebrews 10 would say, coming in such a way that Paul says, what you're doing isn't even the Lord's Supper. That's what he says in verse 20. They're claiming to be partaking of the Lord's Supper when they're feasting and getting drunk and humiliating the people who don't have anything to eat. So he calls for them to examine themselves. So what does this mean for our time of examination when approaching the table? I have three things that it is not and three things that it is. And hopefully this will be helpful as we see the role of self-examination. It is not. First of all, 
It is not self-examination with the goal of eliminating eliminating yourself from participation. It's not, I'm going to take self-examination, and at the end it's 50-50 whether I find myself able to go or not. Look at how it is worded there. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. The goal of examination is that you come and eat the bread and drink the cup. The goal of examination is not that you examine yourself and eliminate yourself from participation. All right? That's the goal. So it's not step one, sing a song about the blood of Jesus. Step two, pray. Step three, examine yourself. And if you've passed those three steps, then come and get a piece of bread. That's not how it's working. It is come with an examining heart, a self-examining heart. Number two, what it is not, Self-examination is not a decision if you are worthy to come or have earned the right to come. And I think this is where we can so often fall into. And I think often it's church leadership is to blame. And I point the finger even at, not me, but at Todd and Adam. (laughs) That sometimes you use vague enough language and it's set up in such a way that there is this kind of We're celebrating the gospel and all that was accomplished by Christ for us. And so now, in these next moments, think about how you've lived for the last four weeks and decide if you've lived good enough to earn some bread and wine. And we sit there in this kind of all of a sudden throwing away what we know is true about the gospel and live in this sort of legalistic world for a few moments of, ooh, do I come, do I not? Adam and I were joking we're laughing about it, but it's a true story. I remember as a kid even being in a time of examining, my mind starting to wonder, and then wondering, can I go have the Lord's table? Because my mind was wondering during the time of examination. So now I got to, you know, it's not a time to introspectively decide on my own, have I lived in such a way that I have earned the right to come to the table of the Lord? The Lord uses that. First of all, it runs completely counter to the gospel we're celebrating. Secondly, I think the devil uses that in our lives to discourage us and to wreck, shipwreck faith so often that we think we need to earn the right to get to a point to approach God. So you look at your life, and you know there's a struggle in your life, and you think, once I get that taken care of, God's going to want to hear from me in prayer. But until then, you know, or you come and you know it's been an up and down week for you and you think, I, I haven't earned the right to sing before God today. I'll wait until I'm worthy and then I'll come. Or I'll just stay home from church because it hasn't been a good week for me. And it can become this downward spiral of depression of I haven't earned my way to God. In the Lord's table, it can be the same way. And the devil can use that in that we, I'm not saying you don't look at your sin and confess your sin and repent of your sin. I'm saying it is the gospel that sets you free. That is where forgiveness is. And to deny yourself access to the gospel until you've earned that right will destroy you. And finally, just a quote. And if I'm, I don't, I didn't look this up, so I might not have the words exactly right. But um, from the Reformation, it talks about the meal is not a reward for the strong, but nourishment for the weak. 
It's not a reward for the strong. It is nourishment for the weak. We all come needy and weak and need the gospel. Then number three, and we sort of already covered, it is not a self-loathing step that is mandatory before coming to the table. So in other words, we sing, we get you all pumped up, now examine yourself, get depressed, and then we'll take the Lord's table. There's a time of honest introspective and realizing your unworthiness, but that only drives you to Christ, who is worthy. And I am hidden in him. It's not punishing yourself for not living good enough. It's not trusting in the forgiveness that is ours in Christ when we live in that sort of guilty self-loathing, I wasn't good enough state. Okay, so what is it? If that is what it is not, what is it? It is a call for the people of God to examine their attitude and actions at the table. Is the gospel that is being proclaimed your hope? Are the new covenant promises going forth? Is that your joy? Is that your treasure? Is that your joy to proclaim? Jesus Christ's sacrifice, do you really remember and believe it was for you? Forgiveness of sins in the new covenant, do you really believe Jesus Christ forgives those sins? The self-examination in Corinth isn't, they were doing the Lord's Supper just right, but they hadn't lived really well, so... No, it's when they were coming, there was no gospel present, so what they were doing was not the Lord's table. And that's what we have to examine ourselves and watch for, that what we are doing is celebrating Christ in the gospel. That that really is our confession and our hope as we come to the table. That really is what we savor, and that is our joy. So you examine yourself, and you come focused on Christ in the gospel. Secondly, it is a call that you come to the one bread and one cup as one body. If you look at verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. There is the vertical, vertical relationship, but there's a horizontal reality. This isn't, I despise the church of God. I can't stand anyone else and consider so. I'm going to do the Lord's table rogue on my own. This is for the community of faith. This is for the body of Christ, purchased by Christ. The Lord's Supper takes place for the community, for the church, for the Lord's people. And as we see, if gospel realities accomplished by Christ, and you're united to those by faith, then that aspect will also be a reality in your life. I wouldn't go so far as to say, I said an unkind word to someone right, you know, last week, and so I've eliminated myself. The saying, it is a meal for the community of faith. It is a meal for the body of Christ. You come celebrating the gospel You come with those realities, the things we've reviewed. You come as the community of faith, as the people of God. 
And then the last point I is an outcome of this self-examination. I don't want to undermine that God, every time the gospel is proclaimed, can use that time as we see Christ, as he's high and lifted up, as we savor him to reveal sin in our lives. And the Lord might very well use our time of the Lord's Supper as you see the beauty of Christ to really reveal the ugliness of sin. And in that moment, the gospel is what you run to. You believe, you repent, and you come. So I don't want to totally throw out that the Lord in this midst of the Lord's Supper can often reveal to us hidden sin, can use this time in our lives to show us the deceitfulness of our own heart, to show how our faith may have drifted. But please don't confuse that with sitting there and weighing out whether you're worthy to approach the table. Jesus is worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. In Him, you have access. So that is a role of examination in that we look what positively is, being, is happening, taking place in the Lord's Supper. And we make sure that is part of what we're doing. So we're not like the church at Corinth where someone walk and be like, that's not even the Lord's Supper. How dare you call it that? This table belongs to the Lord. It is his table. And we come to it to make much of Christ. All right, I'm going to have a word of prayer. And we'll take about five minutes. Kind of you can grab some more coffee, walk around. Please leave your kids in the class if they're already in there. Um, that is fine. Um, we'll take a few moments. During that time, if you have any uh, questions that you've jotted down, Amy and Jen are in the back. You can hand those off to them. They'll get them up to us. Um, stick around. We'll take maybe 15 minutes here to uh, fellowship together and look at the Q&A together. So about five minutes, then we'll gather back for Q&A. Question, how does the Church of Corinth eat and drink judgment on themselves to the point where many become weak and ill and some die, what does it look like in our lives when we eat and drink judgment on ourselves? I, I think, you know, I, I'm not going to know exactly, and Dan, of course, can correct or, or help out. What we see in there, um, in the eating and drinking judgment, again, there's a couple of things that work there in our minds. One, again, we have to hold, we have to hold at every text, every justification by faith alone. We, ha- we, ha- we can't have it in a few texts we like and a couple of challenging texts. We just drift from justification and we read up how we're understanding the text, how we're thinking of the truth of the gospel accomplished. So, again, what we think is worthiness, it cannot be the grounds of my worthiness, i.e. I get out of judgment, is the grounds of something I perform or something that I now am about ready to perform. In other words, in particular moments of my life, I am more worthy than others. We, 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 that, that takes justification by faith alone and destroys it. If I am, based on me, at some moment, more worthy than other moments, then my worthiness is not 100% bound up into Christ. 
who is always worthy every moment of every passing hour. He is worthy. I am basing my entire life upon him. Therefore, I, by union to him, am worthy. So, so we have to think in terms of justification as the text is clear. And then the other element to that judgment, how then can you eat judgment if you are always worthy in Christ? I think there is that element there where the believers there, I do think that the judgment being experienced in Corinth was the believing community. I think that there, there, there is a sense, if we go to, well, a long time ago we had a, a great opportunity here um, at Redeemer to be able to preach through the book of Revelation. And when, when you, you look at the letters given to the seven churches in Asia, there is always this, this word of blessedness that Christ does give to the church. And there is also, but there is this also that I do have against you to a number of churches there within there. And it, there, is, there is this toleration of idolatry. There is this toleration of immorality. There is this toleration of false teaching. And that is this word of rebuke comes not just to those within that are performing these false teaching, but it also to the entire community that is tolerant of it among them. There's a call to the church to exercise this fencing of the church to the elders, a fencing of the table. Uh, whereas if we give way that the Lord's Supper is not even the Lord's Supper among us, there is a way in which this cancer touches and pervades all of us. And there is a sense of loving judgment that does come to children of a loving father that have given way to an irreverent or aberrant view of what Christ has performed for his people by allowing um, ungodly things to take place and paint the table to where it is even unidentifiable among you. There is, that is why many of you are weak. That's why there, there is a cancer that does sit in and destroys even the community of the people of God. Um, so I do yeah. think that judgment does come to the people of God yeah. Yeah, I would think uh, if you look at 1 Corinthians 11 there, it would support that. First of all, as we just mentioned in passing, Paul talks about some of the division will sh divide between the wheat and the tares, and you see that in judgment somewhat. And then even the judgment of God that's laid out, they experience it in those ways of getting sick, being ill, and some even dying. I think Paul's informing them, like, this is taking place in your body, specifically related to how you are living as a church body, and very specifically with the Lord's Supper. But we see that this judgment is a grace of God. Because God says, look at it, in verse 32, he says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So in some sense, even this judgment, even if it's to death, is a grace of God to save us from condemnation. So don't think this judgment isn't damnation. Um, it, it may be for an unbeliever, but it is not someone who's professing Christ, living in such a way, you did the Lord's Supper wrong once and now you're damned. It is uh, judgment, and even that judgment is by the grace of God, severe discipline that is God's grace in our life to save us from... Uh, Hebrews 12. Or, no, we're in the 13 by now. Yeah. Hebrews 13. Oh, we're in 12. 12, sorry. I don't even know where we're at. <laughs> we're working at it. Uh, one question here. 
I've always heard that the body in 1 Corinthians is referring to them not discerning rightly the body of Christ. Why do you think it is the church? Um, I can answer that. I think there's kind of three views out there when they say discerning the body in verse 29. There's one of kind of a uh, Eucharistic view in that they're not discerning that the body is actually turning into Jesus. And so that would be just reject right off the bat. The second one is that they're not remembering Jesus correctly. I think that's what's being asked. Why they're not, when it says they're not discerning the body, the one view is that they're not understanding the body correctly as we are told to. I think it is the body of Christ in the church. If you look back in chapter 10, verse 17, it introduces the idea of we share in the one bread as one body of believers. So it introduces that idea. All throughout the text, when it talks about the body, it'll talk about either one, it refers to as the body of the Lord, if it's referring to the body of Christ, or it will refer to the body and the blood together. And so this, when he simply says the body at this point, I think it goes back to the last chapter where he introduces sharing in one bread as one body. Um, And so it's referring to not discerning the body of Christ, and I think the context supports that as well. So I think if, if, you know, implicit within that is probably uh, not remembering Christ correctly. So that might be part of it, but I think uh, specifically it's referring to the church as the body there. Uh, Okay, let me see. You want to answer, he he has a few from last week that we didn't get around to. If you want to answer one of those while I read through this.
but this would be it in comparing the work of Christ. Again, uh, uh, the writer here says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. The issue is repetition, right? And regular offerings, regular suffering. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what is held out in the Roman meal is a surety of forgiveness based on a continual suffering, based upon a continual real presence atoning. The writer of Hebrews is again, but when Christ, in contrast to regular offering, offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Spirit also bears witness to us that this is the covenant that I will make with them. I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. We heard, then he adds, I will remember their sins. How often? No more. And then it concludes, where there is forgiveness of these, your sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. So that would be an issue with Rome right there. And that's why Heidelberg, this is a secondary question added to that. Why is it an idolatrous view that Rome would hold towards the sufferer? Or why would we label that an idolatry? That was what Heidelberg had called it. Because, again, think in terms of without eating these elements, you are not assured forgiveness. These are necessary appendages to the proclamation of justification by faith. You hear justification, and you must eat regularly and observe regularly this meal or these elements in order to have forgiveness. So it is not just Christ alone as the object of my faith once and for all, but also as a necessary appendage to him are these elements mediated to me by the hand of the priest, thereby guaranteeing or assuring I am forgiven. That is adding to the gospel, that is adding to Christ's once and for all work, what would we call that? An idol. So that is the language of why not once for all sacrifice is mm-hmm. idolatry. There's a few questions last week, a couple this week, just about what point does it become spiritual nourishment, the Lord's Supper? Hopefully the, the sermon this morning answered that. Um, there's not a moment in time which it goes from being physical food to spiritual nourishment as if, you know, if when Todd prays for it, now it's spiritual nourishment. If he hadn't, it wouldn't have been. You know, that's not what we're saying, but we're saying what you are doing is savoring spiritual blessings, gospel promises. You are feeding on it, just like your soul is nourished when you hear the preaching by the fellowship, by worship together. So the same is true in the Lord's Supper. It's not that we're saying something like there's a moment in time which it went from being physical to spiritual. The entire thing is physical as a sign, and the thing signified is a spiritual truth and a spiritual reality. Um, So hopefully that was answered. Uh, Question here. We'll maybe take just one, two more, and then be done. Uh, it says, why do some of the earliest church fathers, some of whom were even co- contemporaries with the apostles, think that the body and blood were actually transformed into the real flesh and blood? They were closest to the teaching time of Christ. Shouldn't they have gotten it right? I'll throw my two cents out, and then you can answer some. Um, yes, they should have. <laughs> I, I think one thing we can see that makes a little bit of sense here is 
Corinthians, the letter to the church of Corinth, is one of Paul's earliest letters, and they're already getting it wrong. I mean, he tells them, what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. And so that's, I mean, very early on, they're getting it wrong. And if you look at Revelation, if you look at, it doesn't really matter what was set in place by Christ in the Gospels. Within 30 years, they're getting it wrong. And Paul's rebuking a lot of what's going on and correcting and instructing. Um, and so, and then I do think when you read, if you read like John 6 and you talk about the bread of life, I mean, there's graphic language about feasting unless you feast on the body of Christ. And so there is language enough that can be confusing at times. Um, and uh, so, you know, that is always a possibility as well. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add. Yeah. Uh, last couple things. Someone asked about good resources. Uh, there's a little book that we have in the bookstop. There's the Lord's Supper as a Means of Grace by, who's that by? Uh, someone Barcelos. Rich? Richard? Richard Barcelos. It's a Reformed Baptist perspective. It's pretty new. It's not that big of a book. That's a really good resource. Um, I read quite a bit of Thomas Watson, The Mystery of the Lord's Supper. Uh, I didn't agree with it everything he said, but that's a good resource. I think it's 99 cents on Kindle. Um, and, you know, it's, so there's some good resources that way uh, you can look at. And finally, I'm just going to read this question. And if it was yours and you want to f- follow up with it, please do, because I'm not sure exactly what's being asked, but it says, if communion calls for personal and private examination, why is it to be done only with others? Um, so just generally, I would say, I think there is both a horizontal and vertical examination that takes place and um, being able to identify, to discern the body, as well as that we're thinking properly about Christ as we approach the table. So I do think there's both. If I'm missing kind of what's being asked, then just um, ask us in a minute. All right. Thank you for hanging in there.